Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American podcast. I am Carrie Ann, and today my guest is Alexandria Miller. And we are, I'll let Alexandra introduce herself, but we are recording this in the midst of a very especially challenging time in the United States. We we are feeling the anguish within our souls and our bodies, the death of George Floyd and the countless names before him. And even since he's passed away, you know, the death of Breonna Taylor, you know, if you're listening and you're, you're, you're tempted to turn this off because it's not your problem. Let's think of both of Jean, who was from St. Lucia, who in Houston or somewhere in Texas, the, 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 or Dallas, whichever city it was, the cop went into the apartment and she killed him because she thought it was her. This is all of our problems, not just a Black American problem. And so I'm excited to have Alexandra here. So Alexandra, welcome to the podcast. Please tell everybody where you come from, where you do, and all that good stuff, or which Caribbean country you're representing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My name is Alexandra Miller. I am a PhD student at Brown University in Africana Studies. Um, My family is from Jamaica, so that is in large part home for me. Um, Big up Centos, big big up Clarendon. So yeah, my work um, is largely on Caribbean women's history, Um, but I just started, so we're still figuring out the whole academic thing, but that is what I do. All right. So, I mean... Tell me, how are you feeling? How are you uh, process this whole thing? Like, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, on one hand, it's it, it's difficult. It is it's difficult. It's been difficult. Um, even going when I was an undergrad, it was kind of at that height of Black Lives Matter. Um, twenty what twenty fifteen twenty sixteen. That was my kind of middle two years of undergrad and. It's very exhausting, you know, at this point to, I remember being part of protests then and um, feeling like something was going to happen and it now to be four years later and the same thing is, is happening again. It hasn't stopped actually. Um, it's tiring. It's like, it almost in some ways feels like a losing battle sometimes um, to continuously be having these discussions or people wanting to have discussions with you when they should be having discussions with their own people um, in a large part. But I think the kind of social media desensitization is what I'm trying to stay away from right now. I don't want to keep in taking certain videos that are um, just kind of repeating the violence that is countlessly happening. And so I've been doing the things like the signing the petitions and stuff like that. That's kind of been my focus, but I've really been trying to stay off watching certain videos or some of those things. Yeah. I think, I think that is very important for us to recognize and create space for people. Right. So I don't want to be like George Floyd have a daughter, like seeing that image of your, your, you know, I remember like there was a very quick flash and I'm like, my God, stop, stop, post a picture of the dead man. Just stop, you know, mm-hmm. um, because in a way it is to me, it's a modern day parading of dead bodies the way it was done back in the Jim Crow, the slavery thing, because those very graphic images were what they mm-hmm. posted in the newspaper 
or on postcard they had lynchings on postcards right or when they posed in front of the camera all these white men with a dead with dead bodies so it's this modern day mm-hmm. just that we are now complicit in doing that so like once mm-hmm. the video share and a kid say he did it, I don't think it's appropriate to reshare that that video. That's just my thought. The trauma it inflicts on um the rest of us. But also the notion that, you know, protests look different in, in a lot of ways, right? So let's back up a little bit. This is, you know, the Caribbean American podcast, but you know, what we haven't spent a lot of time talking about, which is what I'm excited is, and I've talked about this on another podcast, the role of people of Caribbean heritage in Black America and the rights for freedom. So we're not new to this. It's just that we've never really had the discourse about it. So let's talk the history of our role mm-hmm. in civil rights in the U.S. And then let's now transition that discussion to what our role is today. You know, so let's, for instance... You know, everyone know Harry Belafonte, you know, and the role he played then, the role he continues to play now. Mm -hmm. And we don't all have to be actors or actresses or singers to play a role, but knowing that it's important to still play a role. So let's talk about the people who are of Caribbean heritage and that rich connection with our culture and the American civil rights movement or the struggle for freedom across the board. So let's talk about some of those people who played very critical, pivotal roles mm-hmm. in Black Renaissance and um, civil rights. Um, yeah, I mean, there's numerous people that we could talk about. If, I mean, outside of Harry Belafonte, I know numerous people know Marcus Garvey. Um, that is one place to start. But I think there, there are numerous others. If you think of Michael Thelwell, who people most often know because he wrote The Harder They Come, which is that um, the 1980 novel based off the movie um, in Jamaica. But he was also a member of NAG, which was a sect of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee um, through Howard University. So at Howard um, in the 60s. He was there with also Stokely Carmichael from Trinidad. He was there with Cortland Cox, who um, I believe is American born, but his family's from Trinidad and he spent large parts of his childhood growing up in Trinidad as well. Um, And so throughout the 60s, they were involved in countless efforts, whether it was protesting, lunch counter sit-ins, doing voter registration drives. Obviously, Stokely Carmichael is one of the ones who um, significantly grows out of this era when we think of um, even the, the slogan Black Power. Um, he's kind of one of the spearheaded leaders of the of that phrase um, in itself. He accounts others. I mean, you could think of Shirley Chisholm from a political aspect, um, first Black woman to be in Congress in 1968. Her parents were, um, I believe, her, yeah, her mother, her, I think her father was um, from what was then British Guiana, so current day Guyana, and then her mother was from Barbados, um, and she spent much of her formative years in Barbados as well. Um, Malcolm X, whose mother was from Grenada, and then if you want to jump um, to Europe a bit, you can think of a Claudia Jones, who actually spent time both in the U.S. and um, in England. So she was a member of the Communist Party here um, in the U.S., and then most people know her for. Um, what is now the Notting Hill Carnival. She started the West Indian Gazette um, in England. So there are countless people who have been 
definitely formative to the Black freedom struggle across the diaspora that I think we often sometimes negate to really think about. Um, So just that being said, it's not just a Black African-American problem. Um, It's always been, as long as we are in taking up these spaces, I think it's important to say that um, that dominant view in the U.S. for power discussion um, is not necessarily viewing us through our ethnicity. Um, they're seeing race, so they see they see our blackness, and they're not necessarily even questioning what our ethnic backgrounds are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a large part why a number of actors. I think I've listened to a to an interview with Michael Thelwell, and he said something along the lines of he didn't recognize he was black until he came to this country. Right. Um, right. So there is that whole different conception and understanding of who you are racially um, being, whether you are an immigrant to the U S and, and that was very much so in his case, but he definitely in this interview was speaking about how there was a certain realization that he had to go through. And that's probably what prompted him to um, become a member of SNCC and join the activism that they were doing because ultimately America was always going to see him as a black man first and not necessarily question and say, oh, he's different because he's from Jamaica. That's not right. That's not the rhetoric. All right. So so what I want to explore is why do you think they didn't lead? Because we heard what you said with Thelwell, like they saw him as black first and that could be one, like they didn't care whether he came from an island or Caribbean um, or well, at the time, a British colony, they didn't care. You're just black. So maybe that was one reason um, for better or for worse, you know, what do you think that implication has on in modern day, especially for millennials of Caribbean heritage who feel like this is not their issue? So first question, other than the fact that we, you know, they recognize that their blackness was seen first, what other reasons why they probably did not necessarily play up their Caribbean heritage or ancestry? I mean, I think the interesting thing about particularly that time in the 60s was there was there was this massive Pan-African movement as well. So it wasn't just necessarily about Black rights in the U.S. And maybe that is what in large part might may have prompted um, them to not be as vocal about um, their Jamaican history or whoever um, we're speaking about at the, at the time. But I think there was just a recognition that there needs to be better treatment of Black people across the world. It didn't necessarily mean you have to come from one place. And I think given the research that I've done on SNCC, um, and even today, a lot of people talk about Howard as like a black Mecca. So you have um, a lot of students from across the diaspora um, and black diaspora, not just Caribbean diaspora, but you have numerous students from across the world coming to Howard. Um, And then there is an exchange of culture and ideas there that I think we may not see elsewhere in the world. Um, And I think that may have prompted them to just really see it doesn't it's not an individual issue or I'm not necessarily different from this or um, absolved of this issue because I come from this island. This is a problem that we all face regardless. Okay, And and with that, for better or for worse, because they didn't lead with their heritage, a lot of times the history books don't necessarily include that. Mm-hmm. And 
because there was for a bigger cause. And so Caribbean American millennials or kids coming up are not afforded that rich history of knowing that you come from a line of people who understood the bigger picture and were part of this movement very early. And then have that mindset that this is what we are also expected to do in future generations. Because I shared with you a few social media posts where people feel like, no, this is not my problem. And it's hard to distinguish where those accounts are based, whether it's here in the US or in the region. So let's talk about those distinct groups of how maybe people in the region see this, if the, this, the, I don't want to call it an event, the, the environment in which we live mm-hmm. in, because it's an environment, right? It's not a single thing. It's just, it, it's this thing that just constantly surrounds us. And millennials or not, not even millennials, maybe people who are adults, but came to the States, not in the civil rights era. So it was not probably as apparent to them, the experience. So like, what are like some of the things that you've seen and what can we do to have more dialect around? Like, no, this is not because you're not, you're Jamaican, Bayesian, Trini, like what are like, some things we should be having discussions as, as a community. Definitely. I mean, I was actually looking at the book that you sent me, the black identities by Mary C. Waters. And she talks about how um, there is kind of that generational drop off of understanding your racial or your ethnic background. Um, And so if you're that first kind of group of the, or like the first group of immigrants to the U S um, from your family, there is a serious attachment. And how do you um, navigate being Caribbean identified um, in the U.S.? And then she goes through how that changes when, when those people have children or maybe they have children of people who are African-American, et cetera. But I think um, so I think overall there is a there has been a history and a pattern of this happening. What I will say as a millennial um, is that I think there is an interesting and very positive dynamic to how social media in a way has been playing into this in some parts. So on one hand, I know Waters in her book talks about how to certain to a certain degree, that kind of second generation of first U.S. born um, Caribbean identified, they start to less identify with their backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see that kind of changing in my own experience through through social media. You have greater access to Jamaica or Trinity, et cetera, through social media than you would. And then you also have access to the diaspora in a way. So you, you can find out what's going on in England. Um, Well, that was my question to you, whether if we could reach out to her, because I think that book was fascinating, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. whether she would still have, you know, that same basis now that we live in this hyper connected world, whether she would, you know, that, that report, how much she would adjust it. And I think you're right. Um, that there, you know, maybe it waned a little bit. And as you got into adulthood, you're like, wait a minute, I come from this. My mom still does this. I thought Mm -hmm. she was crazy. You mean to tell me there's a whole bunch of other people who have crazy moms. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but specifically, you know, getting involved in, um, and, and I believe Marlon Hill was on the show previously talking about how, 
as a culture, we are not as involved as we should be in local, if it's not local politics, the local community board, we're not getting involved in um, the community as we should. And so a lot of times when these things happen, as we are experiencing, or elected officials don't necessarily look like us, represent us, or only sees us when they need us to vote every couple of years. And mm-hmm. so what what are some of the things we can do to get a little bit more active in the American political system? Because civil rights is a political act. You know, it is to get politics to move in a way that benefits this particular group of disenfranchised people. So what are some things that we should be thinking of um, that we should be doing more um, to so, to because it's a larger cause, like you said, I go outside. I'm a black woman. You know, it, it it is what it is. So what what can we be doing more that it's comfortable? Examples of things that we're comfortable doing, not necessarily going out and rioting or protesting or anything like that. But what are some of the things that we can get involved in to really support the cause? I mean, I think it's. I think we're starting to. I feel like there was a kind of maybe generational gap, and that's why we're behind to a certain degree, but I really see, even if you take the census this year and having the ability to check off, um, having care, yeah, you, that you have Caribbean heritage, et cetera, um, is a big step towards this fight. Um, even I'm a member of the global Jamaican diaspora youth council. And so organizations like that, um, are allowing us to build networks across, across the world virtually, and really discuss how not only how we can make marks in our islands, but the efforts that we can build together um, across the diaspora, regardless of where you are. Um, so I think voting, but I think mostly utilizing our networks. Um, and I think we need to continue to expand that outward into thinking of government positions or youth alliances. Um, I've been trying to do some work regarding kind of college acceptances and assisting high school students who very much so like me a few years ago when I was applying to college had no idea what <laughs> this what this system was and how it worked and it felt like a game in a large part to me um and so as somebody who has I will say has been has been a decent amount successful um through this process you have to go and pay that those efforts forward and, you know, reach back to help others in the same way. And and I mean, the process that you're talking about was the same experience I had over 20 years ago. Whereas it's like your parents are like, what is, you know, it's not very straightforward. And we don't have that built in network or infrastructure to support us through these very common rites of passages, you know, for other groups. It's just like, oh, you're going mm-hmm. to college. All right, here, you know, these are all the support and the resources. And I think right now, you know, the census is a huge thing that we've been talking about. The completion of the census is so important, because, especially mm-hmm. now, because the census, the, it allows them to figure out seats in Congress. Mm-hmm. So if you, if if an area is undercounted, that means we don't have enough elected representatives. You know, so if you feel like I just want that person that represent this whole area, that's because. At the time, certain people did not complete the census. So they were like, yeah, you have less seats. 
if it seems like why them shut down the school only for reopen the school, them shut down the school 10 years ago and now them are build back school. What sense that made? Because based on the census data, they said there should be no more high school age kids in this neighborhood. Mm-hmm. That's because we weren't counting. We weren't, you know, people in the neighborhood, they weren't doing the census. They weren't counting their kids or including kids in the census. And so those things are so important. And that's a way of getting involved, encouraging your friends and your family to do the census. You know, you think of funding for hospitals. We see that hospitals are overrun. We talk about the disparity here, even in New York. If you have a hospital in a Manhattan, they have Wally for money. Versus mm-hmm. here, Brookdale Hospital in Brooklyn, in very highly populated Caribbean communities, them they're overrun, right? They don't have mm-hmm. enough resources. So the census has those very direct impacts. And completing them is part is, is something that if you want, if you feel like you want to do something, encourage people to do the census, you know, um, vote, like you said, petition, voting. And I know people are frustrated with voting because they don't feel like it makes an effort, but people are looking at the presidential election. Mm-hmm. I'm not thinking of the state and local. Are the more important elections mm-hmm. because the issue that is happening with all the police brutality, those are local issues. Those are local mm-hmm. city, county, state issues. And if we didn't vote for the district attorney, if we never vote for any other judges, if we're not vote, like the reason why, uh, uh, yes, there is systematic racism. And but if we're not participating on those levels, we can't expect federal to intervene because there's a separation of state and federal government. So if mm-hmm. we didn't participate on a local level, local level, it's going to be very hard to get federal level intervention on unless we're seeing it at the scale that we're seeing now. So I think you know, and and as you were telling me the of um, Thelwell and Carmichael, they were doing the same things then that we're trying to do now, voter mm-hmm. registration drive, because they understood then as it is now the importance of voting and what that means. So, you know, I'm going like, for me, voting is a thing, just vote. And it's not enough to just do it on the, every four years. You have to do those two years. No, you've, every election. Well, yeah, every year. There's an yeah. election every year. Mm-hmm. Vote, um, vote every year. The local elections are so important to participate in because they're the ones that are going to shape some of this legislature that we need to make changes, you know, um, in certain communities. You know, it's just just bottom line. I I, I mean, we, none of us have the answer because two weeks ago, we lock up in other house because of COVID. Here we are today you know, literally a repeat of Eric Garner, literally. Mm-hmm. There's, it's just different states yeah. and different mm-hmm. people. And what do, what, how do we communicate to, or to people about how serious to take this and how to get involved? What are your thoughts on, especially, you know, you upon the Jamaica global youth, like what are some of the things that you are trying to drive more participation and awareness to what's happening? Um, I mean, I think one thing which we are doing is having these conversations. I think it's one thing to have these ideas in your mind, but if you're not pushing certain things um, forward, even generationally, right? My um, my grandparents may have a different viewpoint on some of the things going on versus what I think of the situation. Um, and so having those 
conversations is necessary. Again, again, I think reinforcing the point of um, it's not just a, oh, you tweeted something and that that is the end all of your your activism. It's not just a digital activism thing um, there. You can send emails to uh, officials, government officials. Um, but I think there is there is just that clarity and understanding that especially when you're living in the diaspora, it really could be you too. So there is, you shouldn't feel like say, Oh, Kaya Flaginayakiar say like that it's that they're gonna say, Oh no, like she's a different person. She's she's not African American. Mm-hmm. And what about like what are your thoughts on like young people or any anybody? Because it's not just young people, everybody all over the spectrum is like, yo, I'm not vote, vote nanga to nothing. Cause we just talked about it. So I don't know. I don't have I, I don't have an answer for that, but maybe you mm-hmm. I mean, I, again, echoing your sentiments, I think it is important. I, even despite like the last presidential election was the first one I could vote in. And despite the overall outcome, it still like continue, has continued to be an important feat for me. Um, I may not have liked how that one went down, but that doesn't mean that I, my vote can't impact the next one. And if, when you look at the stats of just like the margin, particularly for the presidential election, the margin that was between um, Trump and Hillary. And then they have the numbers of like how many people didn't vote in a state that literally could have made the difference. Yep. Yep. Um, so I, again, reinforce, I know in a large part, it does sometimes feel like it's not doing anything, but we really all have to rally together in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless if it's one Caribbean or whether you're Jamaican or whatever, we are all part of a collective black experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to wrap this episode up, cause you know, we, we, we don't have to belabor the point. It's like, it is, it is our civic duty to be part of this era of civil rights. Mm-hmm. And we have to actively participate in voting in whether digital activism, like you said, we have to do our part and we cannot just sit back and say, this is not our problem. This is all of our problems. And, you know, we are, we are truly saddened by it. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it is, it's, it's beyond comprehension. I, I mean, Monday I was, I was, I was crying because I was like, I am not, I said, I'm not coping. I am not coping with the fact that my son or my husband could go through the door and because they're black, you know, doing ordinary things that people do on an ordinary day that could end their lives, you know, and, and black women as well, black women and girls as well. You know, Brianna Brown was in our bed asleep. Yeah. You know, she was sleeping. Like, like I said, very ordinary things that we do. And you're like, somebody did for that. It's like she was sleeping, even if she was. And and the argument for that, and and this is me going off on my legal tangent. The argument for that, she was sleeping. She never had come with you at a weapon. She asleep. And you said she sleep. If she sleep that soundly that you are, you are, you you say, oh, police. And she not get up. You're still going to shoot somebody with a lie down. Like, you don't get that. That makes no sense. But very basic things. You can't go in the park and and call after a bird. You, you you can't run. You can't jog. 
You can't be a twelve-year-old boy. You can't be twelve playing playing in the park. In the, you you can't do any of that. This is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It's not just men. It is adults, men and women, and then you have children. So it's a whole race of people. Mm-hmm. My son is not that far from twelve. You know, in another four years, he's twelve. You know, like you know, and just 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 humanity, just the sheer. Like if, if, if for anything else, and I think that's just what we're, you know, this quick episode was to talk about, like, we come from a rich history and culture of being always supportive of a movement, black movement, end of the college mm-hmm. in slavery, whether it's in Jamaica or wherever else. And we, we need to also play that role now in our own ways, whatever we're comfortable doing, we just still have to, to, to get active and do something. It is so important as Caribbean Americans, it is also our American right to participate in civil rights. You know, it, it is, Mm -hmm. it is just important because again, civil rights. So we trickle down to every other minority group anyway. Yeah. So um, Alexandra, I'm so I'm so glad. This is, you know, one of many conversations we'll have from a Caribbean history standpoint. But I was so happy that you were able to share some of some of the history that we don't t- get to talk about a lot, other than once a year Caribbean Heritage Month. But we 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 need to let people know and say, all right, time to step up and for us all to collectively work together to move or do something. Something better must come somewhere. All right. So tell people where they could find you on Twitter. I think I am Alexandria underscore RM on Instagram. I am a underscore M I L L S zero four. Um, but I am, you can also find me via the Brown university website. Nice. Nice. Thanks Alexandria. All right, everyone. So be safe and, um, do what you can to protect your mental space as it comes to graphic images, et cetera, on the internet. And I'll be sharing a lot of information around, um, voting registration and the census and just stay tuned for that. And, um, until next time, all good. You've been listening to carry on friends, a show about the Caribbean American experience produced by breadfruit media. We post a new episode every two weeks on Tuesday. And if you're looking to learn more, buy our merch, or sign up for a newsletter, check out carryonfriends.com. Or find us on all social media platforms at Carry On Friends.